Hello and welcome to Live Life Better from Virgin in association with Penguin Living. I'm Melissa Hemsley, your guide to exploring the art of self-improvement with authors, experts and curious minds. This week we're exploring the mysterious world of love and relationships. And whether you're coupled up or decidedly single, we all know romance isn't always a bed of roses. Since the advent of dating apps, social media and sliding into each other's DMs, the world of relationships has clearly undergone somewhat of a technical revolution. But are we actually any better at making connections? Or have we just become more and more confused? So to help shed light on this question, I am delighted to welcome a social anthropologist, confidence guru, body language expert, and author of the book Flirtology, Jean Smith. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thanks for that nice introduction. (laughs) And also with us today is award-winning journalist, dating columnist, presenter and producer Dolly Alderton, who's also recently released a new book titled Everything I Know About Love. Hello, Dolly. Hi, and thank you for giving me so many titles there. I think that was to make me feel less bad because of Jean. I took a breath between some commas there. So from romance to other types of relationships, whether at work or at play, a little later in the show, we'll also be hearing from New York Times bestselling author Daniel Coyle. He'll be introducing ideas from his book, The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. And that's coming up shortly. But first, Dolly, your book, Everything I Know About Love. It is part memoir, part observational satire, full of wit, full of honesty and humour. I've cried many, many times already. And it's also your first book. Congratulations. Thank you. How long has that been in the pipeline? Um, I started writing vaguely a sort of book when I was about 25, which was a series of essays about how to survive your 20s. And thank God, it never saw the light of day, particularly as I was only halfway through my 20s at that point. So was it a bit cringe? Well, it's just I remember sending it out to agents at the time and then very gently saying, you know, it takes quite a it takes quite a self-assured person aged 25 to write a definitive Bible of how to survive this entire decade. And also the thing that I look back on now that I find so funny, and this is a very millennial character trait, I think, is I think when I was writing it, that I thought all these problems I was facing were completely unique to my generation. So being a bit panicked about money, being a bit sad about death, you know, and then slowly I've realised that it's much more universal than just being in your 20s and it sort of plagues you forever. So everything I know about love, that's been a couple of years in the making. I wrote about half of it over the course of a year, kind of in the evenings and at weekends, sold it on that half and then I had to finish it in three months. (laughs) They always do that to us, don't they? Yeah, The excitement, the excitement of the deadline. And Jean, you're a professional flirting coach. So where did it all start for you and where did you get the confidence? And I love that you are, we're calling you a guru. Is that the word we're allowed to use here? I don't know if... I kind of like it, a flirting guru. It makes me feel cheeky and warm inside. Well, then you can use it. Feel free to use it, yes. One can't call themselves a guru, I think. Maybe that's That's the That's it, isn't it? That's the the rule. Okay, tell us. A professional flirting coach. Yes, or you could say a flirtologist. Um, Let's say it. A flirtologist. Yeah, well, I think it had to have started when I was a teenager with two younger brothers who apparently had girl problems as well as all of their friends. So I became the unofficial um, person to answer all of their questions about the girls. So it started from that, actually. And 
I actually am fascinated by humans. I just think human behavior is really, really interesting. And, well, obviously I liked flirting as well, still do. So the combination of human behavior, especially in this little niche of flirting, just sounds like a really good idea of something to study. Wouldn't you agree? What Can we define flirting? Ooh, that is a tricky one. Basically, I did a lot of research on this, and I ended up writing my master's dissertation on this research. And the very first question I asked to over 250 people in the cities of London, New York, Paris, and Stockholm was, what is flirting? And here we come up with a problem, because everyone has a different definition of what, what flirting is. What did the Brits is. say? The Brits' definition of flirting. Well, yeah, okay, so let's <laughs> let's be specific then. Pint in a snog. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the male Brits seemed to be a little bit wary of flirting, like it was something not genuine or... Mm, cheesy. Something that people were putting on. Um, and they also used it as a means to an end. A lot of them didn't like the idea of just flirting as a way to pass the time, like some other people did. It was more like, if I flirt, then I might get A, B, or C. The English females, or I should say British females, they kept changing the word flirting to being charming, which mm. was, was very interesting because basically it took out any sexual undertones, right? If you're charming, that's different from flirting. Mm. So here's the problem, which is why I invented the word flirtology, because I wanted to create a different definition that I had complete control over. I like it. Thanks. Do you like a good flirt, Dolly? I mean, I've read I your book, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love flirting. But actually... Great chat. It's, I think I think flirting's great chat. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, it's something that I have now realised. In fact, I'd be interested to get your opinion on this, scene. Sure. Over the years when I've been in relationships, I've always been indignant and outraged that boyfriends have expected me to give up this habit of mine. <laughs> because I really think it's kind of... A part of who I am. Yeah. And I also flirt with women. I flirt, you know, that's the young, nice... the old. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's being charming, though, right? Maybe that's without sexual intention. But I don't know. Life is so boring and conversation can kind of follow such a formula. There's nothing like it when you're at a party or you're at a social event and you feel like you kind of fizz with connection with someone. I yeah, love it. Exactly. That's a good word, fizz. Yeah. And there's so many ways to go with... Your, your comment there. And one is actually one of the reasons why people, and I hope I'm not totally um, going off the rails here, but one reason why I think women in particular, they are hesitant about being in a relationship because they feel that once they're in a relationship, all of a sudden they have to change who they are mm. and, and how they want to be to fit in with the other person. I mean, I'm sure some men feel that way too. Mm. But um, yeah, if, if, if that's how you want to be and what you want to do, you shouldn't change that. But also, you know, I've got no interest in leading anyone on or, or lying to someone or, or making them feel vulnerable that I would you know that's not and you know people that have, that are in relationships have done that to me before and then called it harmless flirting and I think that can be quite cruel but in terms of complimenting someone touching their arm mm -hmm. teasing them I like it yeah it's so fun I know it does get you in <laughs> trouble though doesn't it so I was going to say, we're all 30 plus here. So when we first started to, to flirt, are you not 30 yet? 29. What? Oh. Don't rush me. <laughs> 29. Wow. Are you 29? We're all 29 plus here. <laughs> yes. So when we started to flirt, I mean, I'm trying to think, when do you think the first time you flirted was, if you were to guess? Well, oh, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be difficult, but people say, oh, uh, children flirt. And again, it's defining what is flirting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when was the first time that I flirted with the intent to attract someone whom I, who I was attracted to, um, I would have to be maybe like 12 or 13. What about really? you? 
I was eight and it was the builder across the road from my school and I got told <gasps> to come thing. away from the rails. <laughs> That's hilarious. Not by the builder, by my teacher. That's so funny. My mum tells exactly the same story of me about seven years old going outside, putting my best dress on and talking to the builders. Wow. Yeah. And what were you doing that you were flirting? It was so playtime. It was the play. It was the break at school. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. There's nothing else to do. I was just like saying hello, hello, and same with you. I went to some some of my schools. I went to a lot of schools. Army kid. The schools when I was about that age, they were all girls. And yeah. when you read Dolly's book, you'll see when she's saying, I, you know, you're for years you didn't have a relationship with boys apart from your brother no. and your dad yeah and the yeah. two men that used to come around with your dad yeah and they're just so fascinating and beguiling and actually you flirting with the builders and me flirting with the builders probably is less about getting their attention and more about like curiosity yeah. yeah exactly I like that I think a lot of flirting is fascination behind asking questions constantly I love I love it so what I was going to say is when now we're all past 29. When we were growing up, we didn't have dating apps. Okay, so here's, here's a little fun fact. 91 million people use dating apps. And the subtitle of Flirtology, or new book, is Stop Swiping, Start Talking and Find Love. Uh, you talk about the idea of technology taking over. Could we talk a little bit about that? You talk about connectivity and finding real connections. Yeah. What's your advice for people that have tried the apps? Getting a bit confused, losing their way. What should yeah. they do? Well, I think in theory, the idea of apps or even before that online dating, in theory, this sounds like such a great idea. But I guess, again, the first question would be, is it working for you? And I think most people would find, actually, this is not working for me at all. A bit like social media in general, actually. Sometimes when I come off a mammoth scrolling session, I think, how do I feel better than when I started? I think that is a big question and that is definitely something I know that I'm hoping to to cover in 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 this podcast is what what bits serve us in our daily lives whether it's social media, it's the flirting, it's um sleep, we're covering sleep at one point, what makes me feel good? Because it changes. I know being now 32, what got me excited and what served me two years ago is completely different from now. Yeah. And I think one of the problems with, you know, apps or even social media is that the way it's formatted, it's we're sort of conditioned to be mindless. Well, egotistical, <laughs> um, I mean, self-centered, but, yeah. but also mindless. And so yeah. the, the combination of these things means we don't have the space to step back and be like, hang on a minute, is this actually working for me? And then the other thing I'd like to comment about um, why people initially, well, I guess still are, but initially were so drawn to first online dating, then apps, it's because people thought it would be a way that they would not feel rejected. Oh, well, finally. Yeah, because yeah. this is the basis of everything. It's about people doing everything they can to make them feel like maybe I won't be rejected or hurt. Mm. So if I sit behind my screen and swipe and I never actually engage or interact with people, then it doesn't matter if they've rejected my on-screen persona. Mm. But if I'm actually out and about, for example, at a pub talking to someone and they're not interested in me, well, that's going to hurt. So I think I'm going to try the apps. But again, it goes back to the question I just asked. Okay, fine. But is that actually working for you? Because we've now had 10 years of practice and that's, enough, that's a big enough sample size to look to find the answers. On the subject, so we're talking about relationships today. So we, we are talking about love, but rejection, now you've brought it up, is such a big one. Mm. You talk about it a lot. Mm. I feel like, you know, when you're at school, the social skills you're taught, like, well, most of us aren't learn how, uh, we don't learn how to cook. Um, none of us know how to do our tax. I think that's the big one, or fill out any kind of important forms. Yeah. And I think rejection or dealing with setbacks should be something taught. Yes, what, totally. How have you taught yourself how to bounce back? 
I think something that's very telling that I think a lot of women have in common is when I have been rejected in the past, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I can say it because I'm, it's in the pages of my book. The thing that has always hurt most has not been not being loved. It's been not being fancied. And, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that because that that means that for some reason, the, my kind of physical currency, I see as more of a precious asset than my soul and who I am. So something that I've had to deal with as I've got older. So there's one point in the book when I'm 21 and sort of brutally dumped for the first time. And I said to say to him, do you love me? And he says, I don't think I do. And then I said, do you still want to have sex with me? And he was like, I don't think I do. And that was the, the latter. I sort of forgot about the first one. The latter was the thing that I just completely obsessed over for years and years. And actually... As I've got older, what I've had to just teach myself is that that my kind of value comes so much, goes so much deeper than the way that I look and whether someone wants to sleep with me because of mm -hmm. that or not. Um, and that makes it much easier when you become more robust about that and and kind of connecting with who you are and, as I say, where your value is. It becomes much easier to face skin-deep rejection. Mm. I find. I mean, I'm not going to feel great about it if no. I go up and do my best flirting with a guy at a bar and he says, sorry, I'm not interested. But I think I can handle it much more now knowing the sense of self that I have than when I was 21. I like how you called it my best flirting. I would like to see. Well, I, I would like to see what that, you know, what why, that looks because like. I was just regretting how earlier I was going on about how much I like flirting because I know my <laughs> friends will listen. Have you been to thinking this. about this? <laughs> yeah, because I know my friends will listen to this and say that I'm like not a very good flirt, even though I do it all the time. I'm the kind of woman who will say to an Irish barman like, "I have a weakness for two things, like Irish accents and green eyes." Like I'm that sort of <laughs> awful flirt. So I'm admitting that now. I love it. I think that sounds great. <laughs> okay, so Dolly's Dolly's saying she's not great, but she could be but she sometimes is will you i would like some top tips well i yeah. think everyone would like some top tips okay. will you also read to us quickly this bit that i picked out from flirtology the artist georgia o'keefe says that art to her is filling a space in a beautiful way this is exactly how i see flirting and the art of interaction filling the space in a beautiful way it is about having the best possible interactions with those around us whatever your goals are flirtology is here to help you delight in the quest and have a marvelous time while doing it. It's about connecting. As humans, isn't this why we're here? I'm so glad you're doing your own audiobook, Jean. That sounded so good. You know, I, I was listening to your podcast, Dolly, and I heard you talking about you just finished uh, recording yours, and I thought, oh, right, I must email Michelle and ask her um, when I can do my audiobook. <laughs> Basically, everything you've been doing, I've been doing. <laughs> okay, I need an audiobook too, okay? <laughs> If anyone's yeah, listening. That's right. So follow Dolly. <laughs> but uh, Melissa, could I please talk about um, for Ooh, a moment yeah. what Dolly was saying about rejection? Because what I like to do is reframe things that we think we know are right. So, for example, I think most of us have been brought up thinking rejection is horrible. We must avoid it. Now, not to mention all of the situations that we've actually deprived ourselves of because we've already made up the inevitable end conclusion of something that's actually not real. But what, what I would like people to 
do instead of thinking of rejection as something soul-destroying is actually look at it as an effective weeding out mechanism, mm. okay? So it helps you separate those with whom you wouldn't get on with, and then it helps you find those that you would get on with. So, for example, if you walk up to someone and say, I have to apologize, now is my favorite chat-up line, you must be a parking ticket because you've got fine written all over you. What do you think? See, Dolly's laughing. We'd make a great, great match. But if they look at me like you're such a loser, then I think, okay, is this rejection? Possibly. But actually, it just shows we would make a very good match anyway. So let's find someone who does. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because when I was younger and I would make the moves I've never had a problem with making the moves first I gotta say I've never had the moves (laughs) whenever I've done that and I've been battered away which has been you know my success rate has been moderate um but when that has happened I think when I was younger I used to think like oh damn I didn't approach that right or I didn't look right or there was a way that somehow I could have tricked this man into being interested in me and there's something really freeing as you get older when you're like if I'm not his cup of tea, I'm not his cup of tea. And no amount of trickery is going to change that. And as you said, that's kind of separating the wheat from the chaff, which is great. So it's actually useful. It's it's a useful mechanism. It's an efficient time-saving tip. Exactly, Melissa. Yep. I really like how you asked us to reframe the idea of rejection as to something more positive. Dolly... I'm, I sound like a stalker. I would like to quote, Dolly talks about self-sabotage a lot, which I really resonated with, still do now. What could be an, a positive, nice spin we could use on the word self-sabotage to, to relook at the way we behave and treat other people? Or what can we do to ourselves when it's all going well? Again, if we just even change the words, instead of self-sabotage, it's maybe something something to think about. So you can actually stop for a minute and be conscious about why are you trying to self-sabotage yourself? So, again, I, I don't know, because obviously I never self-sabotage. I mean, that's such a lie. But, you know, like, <laughs> if we could speak about the specific things that are coming up, you can just look that look at that as, like, a helpful tool to think, hmm, okay, some areas of my life I need to step back and take a look at. Mm. Maybe the sa- sabotage is just helping you look at things in a different way. Mm. Do you talk to yourself when you self-sabotage? I do. I say stop self-sabotaging. But now I'll say something different. Do you? Yeah. How does it manifest, if you don't mind me asking? It could be anything. But I've now... I. It's almost that I know when I'm doing it, when I'm really fussing, really, really fussing and picking at myself and other people. Yeah. And also, I've got a dog who's the dopiest, loveliest thing in the world. When I find myself snapping at her, you know, I mean, I don't... God, no. Don't call the RSPCA, but I mean, when I like say, no, you know, you know, get down or I I don't have time to kiss you. When I have time to kiss my dog, I know that I'm really fussing over things and really prioritizing the wrong things. Right. Yes. And then I stop. I do stop and sit there and say to myself, why don't I have time for this? What have I put straight to my head that is too important for that moment to stop? Mm. When I read the word self-sabotage in yours, I I kept thinking, I don't really hear that phrase much, but it really resonated Mm. with me. Mm. There's something, um, this is going to sound insanely hippie-ish, and I'm revealing myself as being sort of an insane hippie. Not fully. I just have insane hippie tendencies sometimes. Um, A friend of mine said that when she hears her inner voice being cruel to herself, that she addresses herself out loud by beginning with the sentence, darling, darling, and then the name. So this sounds mad, but if 
I find myself picking up my book in the middle of the night in a state of anxiety and going, that's a terrible page. Why did you write this sentence? This is rubbish. Uh, when I find myself skipping meals out of stress, you know, all these kind of habits that mean that I'm not showing myself care. Often now, in the privacy of my own flat, I live alone. I will take a moment and go, darling, darling, Dolly, what's up? You know, that is a great tip. That's mm. what your friend does, does she? Yeah, she taught me to do it. And yeah. I initially was just like, oh, that sounds nice. I'm never going to do something as hopping mad as that. I but, actually really love that. You know, it's important to remember the relationship with self and to think of self as... Um, Sophie Dahl talks a lot about this, actually, in her cookbooks about how we need to think of ourselves as like a child that you would look after. So you would never give a child... If a child was stressed, you would never give a child like four fags and three cans of Coke for lunch. So you have to kind of treat yourself with the same tenderness and as kind of cheesy and mawkish as that sounds, taking those moments for me in adult life to say, darling, 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 mm. what's up? Mm. What's going on? And kind of check in. That's been really helpful with the kind of self-sabotage stuff. Why is it that we can be more tender to a lover or someone else and not to ourselves? Jean. Yeah, so it, it goes back to still around the, the idea of rejection and self. I think that we walk around with holes and we expect other people to fill them. And so it's almost like if we're more tender towards a, a lover or a partner, we're hoping that indirectly they will be able to help fill some of our missing holes. But obviously, this isn't efficient, and it doesn't usually work, but it sure explains why we're so tied to what other people think of, it, of us. Mm. But just imagine if we were doing all of this hole-filling ourselves through self-care, through you know conscious work, through making ourselves feel happy, then we wouldn't be so externally tied to other people and how they feel about us. Mm. Well, from the dynamics of romantic relationships to the secrets of professional ones, our next author believes that managing group dynamics is the key to productivity and success. His book's titled The Culture Code. Here's Daniel Coyle. Well, my name is Daniel Coyle. I'm a, a writer and a researcher uh, in the area of human performance. Like what makes great people, great groups tick uh, for about the last... Um, 15 years I've been studying this stuff and visiting really super talented individuals and and more recently really, really high-performing groups to see what makes them tick. And we've we've got, you know, kind of an idea of what that looks like from the outside, but when you actually spend time inside them and look at the science, you get a completely different picture. And that's what my new book is about. It's called The Culture Code. Yeah, it all started in kind of a crazy way. I was I was looking at really talented individuals, and as a result, I found myself on a tennis court outside of Moscow uh, called Spartak that has produced all these great champions. Uh, it's a very simple, primitive court. But I was there and I saw this one interaction and a new a new kid had come to play tennis and she was you know a young girl and she had a tennis racket in a plastic bag. And the coach, I saw this legendary coach, notice that girl come in and walk over to the girl and she was carrying a tennis ball. And she'd said to the girl, welcome, I want you to do something for me. And she said, I want you to catch. And she threw her this little girl, this tennis ball, and the little girl caught it. And it was like, it took five seconds. It was a really tiny interaction, but it had a massive effect on the way that girl connected to the group. It was like, that's their culture right there. That's how they create a connection, that action. And that got me really fascinated. 
what's that made of? Like, how do great groups do that? How do they create that connection? And so that little tennis ball, what I found out when I visited other places like Navy SEALs Team 6, like Pixar, like great sports teams, like great businesses, like great restaurants, I found they all had their tennis ball. They all had their moves that they would make. They all had their ways of creating a deep connection in a group. And it wasn't magic. It was this, this stuff that anybody can, can learn and understand and do. We always talk about chemistry, right? You know, like, oh, we have really good chemistry. We really clicked. That is not random. There is a physics underneath that. It really, when you get down to it, has to do with these two signals that you send. One is a signal of safety. You know, our brains are built to react to signals of safety, signals of belonging. They're called belonging cues, and that's because they send this really clear signal like we are connected. We share a future. Um, and that signal can be sent through expression, through body language, through language itself, but it's a signal of safety. And that's the first part, so you're connected. second part of that signal is a signal of vulnerability that says, hey, I'm exposing a weakness to you. You know, I'm opening up. I'm telling you a truth about myself. And, you know, if you do that back to me, it creates this intense interpersonal closeness. And that's a huge deal. And that's at the heart, that's the heartbeat of, of any strong relationship, that safety, vulnerability, two-step. So, yeah, I, I'd love to share some tips with you uh, from the Culture Code on how to do that, you know, and how to apply that to your life. And, and you know, it's funny, I've, I've felt... A lot of these in my own life, as I was researching this, uh, it sort of puts up a mirror to sort of habits and patterns that people have that you notice uh, might not be great. And so just to throw out a little bit, paying deep attention to the first five seconds of every interaction, really investing attention and energy. Our brains are built to decide whether we're safe or not really quickly. And what you see in great groups, what you see in great leaders, what you see in great relationships is this... It's funny. It's actually a facial expression. You, I saw it everywhere I went. I saw it on the Seals. I saw it at Pixar. I saw it on the San Antonio Spurs. I saw it at Zappos. It's this total absorption, eyebrows up, face very still, head tipped, intently, actively listening and connecting to the person who comes in, really making a big deal about that. And when somebody had a first day somewhere, when somebody had a first day in a new group, that's a big deal. That is a time to really spend a lot of time thinking about scripting. How do we make this day? How do we maximize our connection? You know, some other really, really simple things that I learned through the course of researching the book that are worth thinking about are something as simple as when you're interacting with your coworkers, sending this little email. There's a little email that I learned about this guy named Laszlo Bach. He used to work at Google. And what he said, look, just send an email with two lines. What do you want me to keep doing? What do you want me to stop doing? That's it. It's it's the simplest note, but it sends a really large signal. And the large signal is, hey, uh, I care about getting better, and I'm willing to get feedback, and I really want feedback. And when a leader does that, that's the other thing I guess would be, I guess it would even qualify as a bit of a tip. Leaders need to be fallible first. They need to be the ones to set the tone. Uh, they will give permission for other people to open up. Another simple tip is something called an after-action review which is a sort of heavy-duty military term. It really doesn't need to be that heavy-duty, but it just gets to this idea that after you do something in a group, you should circle up and ask two questions. What went well, and what are we going to do differently next time? The good groups I saw did that immediately after an action, and it's a tremendous learning opportunity. 
it's hard to do because you just finished doing something. Why? It's really hard to sort of drag your attention back and look in reverse. And it's really hard to admit weakness. Like we're allergic. If we just had a meeting and 90% of the things went right, it's really hard to like make ourselves admit the 10% that didn't. But that's the single most important thing you can do um, to make the group function better. So an AAR, an after action review, is just a super simple way to, uh, way to approach stuff. Another little tip that I picked up, which is, it's kind of like a litmus test to see if you're in a good group or not. Culture often seems kind of ineffable and ethereal and you can't really feel it. Well, there's a moment where you can always feel it. It's right after a problem happens, no matter what the culture is, no matter what the group is. The second a problem happens, look at the reaction of the group. How do they react? One of two things will happen. Energy will go up and people will cooperate and connect and work together to solve the problem or energy will go down and people will evade, avoid, blame, and get angry about the problem. That reaction tells you more about the culture than any mission statement, any speech ever could. Look for that reaction. That's the tell that you're in a good culture, or maybe you're not. So really focusing on those points, really focusing on those moments, right after somebody drops something, right after something goes wrong, how do people react? That'll tell you all you need to know. 
not not a cheap one. And then he ran off to mop his face from sweat and left me sweating. So I bought the first one, then he bought the next one. And I think even when I'm out with my girlfriends and people, I generally say, do you know what? Let's just, I'll get one, yeah, you get the next. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, what do you think? Well, this is, again, this is so interesting to me, this, this subject. And... I'm actually not a big fan of the splitting, even when I go out with my friends, because I feel like if people split, then no one gets to give a gift and no one gets to receive a gift. And it just turns into a a transactional affair. So you're missing that part out. On the other hand, I, I, I don't think by any means men should be paying. And I think that's where a lot of women are getting it wrong, especially in this new and exciting era. It's actually all boils down to economics and choice. In the past, men paid because they blatantly made more money. Mm -hmm. We're still working on that one. But they also got the choice. They got to choose who they wanted to ask out. They got to be the ones to approach. Mm -hmm. But now, as women, if we can afford to buy someone dinner, that means we get to ask out whoever we choose. And so I think women still haven't quite reached that where because people always ask me, oh, is it okay if I approach men? And, you know, all these sort of questions. And it's like, yeah, if you're willing to open your purse, yeah, you can have all the choice in the world. So it's linked to that. And by assuming that, oh, he should pay or I like gentlemen, we're actually giving up so much. It's our choice. And also something that really annoys me, other than the fact I just find it baffling, the idea that a woman would want to be feel value by a man paying for her. Because for me, if that's kind of the constant dynamic, then it does feel like there's an unspoken contract there, which is I give you my body and you pay. And I just don't feel comfortable with that if it's if that's the only dynamic you have. But also what I find astonishing is so many women I know who call themselves feminists have said to me, they always let their boyfriend or their date pay because it makes them the man feel good. And I'm like, I've just got no interest in making a man's ego feel good. I've got no interest in doing that. It's complete nonsense and it's at the expense of your integrity. Sorry, there's a bit of a rant there, wasn't there? Oh, I liked it, though. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Jean, flirtology, this is your term. Yes. Is it it in the dictionary? Is it going in the dictionary this year? It should, shouldn't it? Have we called them up? How do do you get a word in? They do announce it every year, don't they? The Oxford Dictionary. That should, we, should we send them a tweet Let's now? Yes. Do it. Let's do it. Yes, this is the year for flirtology, that's for sure. <laughs> this is the year for flirtology. Flirtology, okay, it, it sounds scientific. Obviously, we're going to buy your book. Do we need to read the whole book? Do we read bits of it? Where do we start? Oh, what I should we do? That. that is such a great question. It's a book that you don't need to read from front to back. There's sections that have practical tips. There's sections that talk about like deal breakers if you're specifically looking for a partner. Um, And then even if you don't have a partner, apparently people find it really useful. So I guess flip through and just read the sections that you're drawn to at different times. Okay, amazing. And then, Dolly, did you notice these cards down here? Mm, What are they? We saved them. We were playing with them before, and then we said, let's put them away and wait wait for us to start. Okay. Are you going to do my tarot, Jean? <laughs> That's what I thought she was going to do. Okay, so just to describe, Jean brought in these lovely, high-quality, thick card. They're great. Um, very beautiful cards. And they've got Jean's number on them, 020. No, I'm only joking. I won't read out her number. You've got to buy her book if you want her number. But on the back, they've got lovely things. Dolly, read out yours. Catch someone's eye, hold contact for one, two, three seconds, then look away. Now do it again. I bet you've picked up some blokes in your time with these cards, Jean. Even even without the cards, Dolly. (laughs) Okay, my card. Your smile is like giving someone a gift or compliment. 
go and smile at someone. Add a wink if you dare. I've never been able to wink in my life. Go on, show it. Why, why is winking so flirty? It really is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, especially if you add a little oh, no, head tilt. It's, it's, well, she didn't, um, Dolly didn't like my I'm wink. I'm not sure about that, i got to say. You're a very beautiful and, and sensual woman, but <laughs> that was a bit too fagin. <laughs> they can go two ways, I think. Jean, yeah. give us your best wink. Yeah. Oh, she yeah. did a sound. I didn't yeah. know you we were allowed to, to add a, a click. Yeah. I picked that up when I lived in Ireland. But it's that's just like, I think you can do that because you're kind of gutsy and American. I don't know <laughs> if English people can do that. <laughs> go on, Dolly. Come on. Yeah. No. Well, if we're going to put a sound into it. Oh, okay, yeah. that's better. Okay, yeah, better, that's better. better. okay yeah. basically, if you're going to wink, make the sound too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, one more. Let's read out one more. Oh, I like this one. Arms uncrossed and relaxing by your side. Check. Shoulders facing towards your interest. Check. Standing tall. Check. Now stay like this in your next conversation. God, this is okay. all really helpful stuff, actually, because it's stuff you do forget about. Oh, well, yeah. thank you. You should write a book about it, Jean. <laughs> idea <laughs> um can we have some more checklists like this because these aren't even just flirty things these are not flirtology this is actual confidence boosting mm. pep talking ourselves talking to ourselves any other top tips we could do i think probably breathing and doing something that you want like for yourself or having a chat with a friend who you really like that's a great one i think that's what kind of instills you with confidence, doesn't it? Mm. Do you know what's funny? The second you said that, I thought, do you know what I always do? I always WhatsApp my friends when I'm on the tube before I go and do something scary. But I should call them. Yeah, yeah. What I'm finding I'm doing for myself and other people around me is we're actually taking a pause to look back and think about things that we, we're missing. So, for example, my birthday's coming up. So I decided I'm having a slumber party with my girlfriends. Fun. Yeah, my husband's been invited to um, go visit his parents. Uh, <laughs> and and I've actually handwritten cards. Oh, I and, love this. Yeah, and I mailed them to all my friends. And in each card I wrote, you know, you're invited to my slumber party. Here's the agenda. I really value our friendship. I mean, I wouldn't have thought about doing that even last year, the year before. Mm. But now I'm really taking pause to try and incorporate what I've been missing from the past. Totally. I had it the other day. I was had a, I had a really stressful morning with work. And my friend Belle had had a stressful morning with work as well. And we were sort of sending these fragmented WhatsApps where, you know, and it becomes slightly not competitive of who's had the most stressful morning, but you just both announced to each other that you've had this stressful time. And then I was in between meetings and I decided to go to Topshop to calm myself down, obviously. <laughs> and I was walking around the coats and then I saw this mad woman run behind me and it was Belle and she just was did exactly the same as me she, she was self-seething in Topshop exactly Aww. and she just kind of grabbed me from behind and just pulled me into her and she went oh, I'm so happy to see you and we just stood in the middle of the coats and just held each other <laughs> for about one minute and I was like god my day is shit and she was like my day is shit as well and then we just didn't even really talk about it and she had to go back and I had to go to this meeting and I could tell that we both with that human contact and with that connection we both left the Oxford Circus Top Shop to go back out into the world with this like amazing mm. confidence and knowing that we've got that champion mm. behind us. And you only get that from FaceTime, really, yeah. I think. And you've just reminded me how good a hug is. I mean, mm. scientifically speaking, could a good hug be as good as a good orgasm? Um, I like that you keep asking Jean for these definitive... <laughs> I know, I'm sort of like, I'd prefer the orgasm. I'm asking anyways. for a friend. <laughs> yes. um, there must be there must be things we're releasing with the hug that yeah. I don't want to say we're releasing yeah. with the orgasm. It's, 
hugs do but stimulate hormonally, oxytocin. Yes, yeah. that's it. That's and what actually, I'm trying to say. I was the hugging expert about three years ago in St. Pancras Station. So it, it is, I am the right person what to ask. What do you mean? Just around the corner. You were a hu- there was a big hugging event and people had to have a partner and hug for about 24 hours. What? Why yes. were you doing this? Yeah. Was this for charity yeah. or just for fun? I think it was for charity. Bring it yeah. back. So how do you go to the loo? I think there were special, special exceptions. Special. Yeah, yeah. But that is interesting. A good hug. Yeah, I know that. WhatsApp, social media, anyone else just find they just get fed up sometimes with their friends and themselves. When you start one conversation, you're WhatsApping, then an email chain's going around. So you've had oh, a little yeah, chat there. Yeah. Then before you know it, someone's direct messaging you. Mm. Then you've got a text. Then some. Then you're chatting on Facebook. And there's so many different platforms. But as as you say, you realise you haven't seen them in real life mm. since Christmas or whoever's birthday was last. But you've had all these little chats and none of them hit the spot that you talked about, the sweet spot of mm. hugging in the coats the at Topshop. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and the problem is as well is that I'm someone who... I hate this why the 24 hour hug would never work for me. I hate feeling kind of harassed or um controlled or claustrophobic. And that's where WhatsApp can be really dangerous because I've certainly had it where I have felt really pestered by people that I don't that you know I haven't seen for ages mm-hmm. and that I really love but because of this the constant thing of WhatsApp that it kind of can start an all-day dialogue. Um, it, I think it's very dangerous for giving you a full sense of being overcrowded. Yes, and actually Adam Alter speaks about this in his TED Talk that we don't really have any end functions these days. For example, if you read a newspaper, there'd be a... I don't remember the exact word he used, but after reading a newspaper, there'd be an obvious end point. The last page. The last page, exactly. Or if you're talking on the phone, then you hang up, right? Yeah, that's interesting. And so these days, everything is constantly scrolling. Yes, yes, that's interesting. And that's why you find yourselves... Well, I mean, this is a whole different conversation, but that's why we're a generation of ghosters. And that's why I often will find myself not opening a message on WhatsApp in a very rude way for like weeks and weeks on end. Because as you say, I think you worry about opening this Pandora's box that there's never a a moment of finality. And something else I noticed, like even when I emailed your good self, Dolly, you you always have an an auto response saying, you know, I'm away and I'll be back on this day. But what I realized when I'm on holiday, I have my auto response But if everyone's WhatsApping me or even texting me, they don't know that I'm away. So we don't actually have a function built into our phones to show people I won't be receiving this. There's this expectation that you've got the message and now you're being rude because you're not returning it. But you want to say I'm physically unavailable and emotionally unavailable to you right now, but I will respond Mm -hmm. in a timely manner. This is a a side note, but Jean had the best out of office I've ever, ever read. Oh, thank you. It was years ago where you said, question... Who's a wine swigging tennis playing woman? Answer: Jean. Back in back in a week, y'all. <laughs> Jean. I was like, this that woman is genius. And this is when I was like, it was like a work email, and I was like, this woman is sassy as hell. Question. I can't believe you remembered that. That yeah. was from years ago because yeah, I, I don't play it. tennis anymore. I tell, but I yeah. tell everyone that. Could you put an out of office on right now so when I email you tonight, I've got something to laugh and enjoy? <laughs> Thank you for that, I Dolly. I forgot about that one. I wanted to close. We're running out of time. I'm really disappointed about that. But this show is about relationships. And I think, uh, don't know if you agree, I think you do, because I've read your books, is that the most important relationship we have is with ourselves. Mm. So I wanted to do some quick fire questions. Mm. Let's go to Jean. Self-love. 
What is the number one tip or action we can do to give ourselves some self-love? Yep. What would you do? Just know the top five things that make you feel really good. So for me, yoga, definitely. Epsom salt baths, healthy eating, healthy baking. I love baking some good old muffins um, and hanging out with people who make me feel good. That's a Whether it's one. my husband, whether it's my friends, that's it. They're five amazing tips. Dolly, your one is, if you could go back and speak to your younger self, what are you going to say? Darling, darling, Dolly. Darling, darling, Dolly. Don't change yourself to make other people like you. People are much more likely to like you if you spend some time working out who you are, where your boundaries are, what makes you happy, what doesn't make you happy, and then be that girl every day. And that doesn't mean that you you have to kind of piss people off or alienate people. You can still be polite and charming, but don't bend your identity every which way to accommodate other people because it will be great for them and it will be so rubbish for you. Amazing. Hear, hear. I love that. A huge thanks again to my guests. All the book titles we've talked about today are out now. I'm going to summarise them because you'll want to get a pen and paper and write this down. Flirtology by Jean Smith. Everything I Know About Love by Dolly Alderton and The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. We'd love to hear how this show has inspired you to live life better. So get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag LiveLifeBetter. Live Life Better is a PixU production for Virgin in association with Penguin Living. Join me again in two weeks' time. From me, Melissa Hemsley, goodbye. <laughs>